0: You are listening to the Post-Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello all and sundry and welcome to the season three finale of Post-Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayliss is my name. Ending infinite growth on a finite planet through conversation, storytelling and music is my game. Yes, you heard me right. This episode rounds off Estella Season 3 while yours truly takes a little sabbatical. Just like the exponential growth of GDP, all things must come to an end and this season of PGAP is no exception. And what an epic season this has been. We started the season with Joshua Spodek, host of award-winning USA podcast, This Sustainable Life, with multiple TEDx talks under his belt. We spoke with Charles Massey, regenerative farmer and a subject of an Australian story episode. The episode on public housing with Dr Alex Borman has proven itself to be the second most listened to episode in Gap's two-year history. Finally... The Three Women, Two Countries, One Message episode for World Population Day has become one of the most loved and cherished PGAP episodes and helped to ensure that PGAP exceeded 11,000 total listens as of July and is now among the 5% of global podcasts. In the meantime, the world is going to shit in a handbasket, but hey, you can't have everything. (laughs) Permaculture has been a big theme for Season 3 as well and I'm really excited that my guest for this episode combines my twin loves of Wholesome Food and Muzak. Charlie McGee from Formidable Vegetable does both in spades, literally, but before I introduce Charlie, a few musings on the role of the intersection of music and activism. Much has been written on the pivotal role that both music and, for that matter, mind-enhancing substances have had on the countercultural movement. It is impossible to imagine the zeitgeist of the late 60s without the tune-in drop-out of the LSD movement and with a Jimi Hendrix playing in the background. I remember when I joined my first band in 2006, we settled on the name Syrian Rue, which was informed by my fascination with psychedelic botanicals at the time. The first song I wrote for this band was End of the World, an unsubtle vision statement to the fact that I was already pinning my limits to growth concerns to a musical landscape. Four years later, my second band Shock Octopus released our first single Safe Room." I wrote the lyrics to it about what happens when the world is so wrecked that even the privileged and entitled can't hide from it. The mission statement has continued since with a benefit single in 2020 called No Easy Way Down about a polar bear waxing existential lyrical as the polar caps melt. I remember back in the noughties, my lyrics were met with a lot of confusion and bemusement. People couldn't understand why I was being so dour or thought that I was being apocalyptic for purely aesthetic reasons. One reviewer even labelled a band I was in as Two of Fire and Brimstone. Ten years ago, most people hadn't yet caught up with the seriousness of our predicaments, dare I say, despite warnings going back right back to the early 70s. These days, everyone is an amateur expert on the end of the world. And some of the same people that were brushing me off a short while ago are now really starting to panic. But in looking at music more broadly, sometimes I do wonder whether it has incited social change to the extent that people believe it has. Obviously the 60s achieved some pretty great social liberation milestones but it certainly did not stop walls, fundamentally change our spiritual relationship with the natural world or by any means end anthropomorphic infinite growth on a finite planet. Many of the countercultural rock stars of the late 60s either met ultimate ends or their message became watered down over time, whether this was by fame, wealth or losing sight of the big picture. I would say the last countercultural movement, inseparable from the music, at least in the Anglosphere, would have been the Manchester movement of the late 80s. So much transcending music has been recorded since. I would argue, for example, that post-rock takes a listener into other realms. But I suspect the music industry, much like wider society, is too fragmented, weakened and hollow these days to create a zeitgeist on enormous scale. I've often wondered to the extent whether activist music, much like the activist storytelling and indeed activist podcasts, really do inspire people to action, or whether they risk turning into another form of passive entertainment, activism by proxy, in other words. So with these musings in context, I've been incredibly encouraged by the huge support and attention that Formidable Vegetable have received over the years. It is so hard to imagine that singing songs on permaculture would work beyond a novelty act, and yet Formidable Vegetable have transcended all of this and then some. The band has played to sell out crowd and to sell out stadiums and sell out festivals, but Formidable Vegetable, true to form, have never themselves sold out. They decided to move away from the macrocosm, including their air flight environmental toll of international tours, and now explore the microcosm of local gigs and good causes. I first saw Formidable Vegetable in Melbourne, where they played to the permaculture community in intentional communities and even rental houses. It so happens that the mastermind behind Formidable Vegetable, Charlie McGee, Also returned to Western Australia around the same time that I made the move and now lives one town over from me on an an intentional community. Last New Year's Eve, I was thrilled to see Formidable Vegetable headlining at a family friendly event on the Albany foreshore when they played. It was as electrifying as ever and it melted my heart to see young children get up and boogie to songs about reducing waste, growing vegetables and stopping rampant climate change. So perhaps there is still game-changing power in music after all. For long-time listeners to PGAP you may have noticed that formidable vegetable frequently come up in the soundtrack for our episodes especially in the permaculture themed ones. It was very kind of Charlie McGee to give me free rein to their catalogue for so long and even better that he has kindly offered the time to speak to me of the amazing Formidable Vegetables story as well as various thoughts of the state of the world and the environmental movement. Before we speak to the ever-impressive Charlie McGee, I thought I might start off with a Formidable Vegetables new version of No Such Thing As Waste from their release, Garbage Guts. Feel free to have a dance or jump around to clear up the cobwebs before the interview proper. See you soon.
1: When I was a little kid, I liked to catch the rain While my friends around the town let it flow right down the drain But our tiny house in the trees had one thing that we drank we had saved in our rainwater tank. Cause there's no such thing as waste. Only stuff in the wrong place. No, there's no such thing as waste. When we treasure every trace. Moved to the city, rented a house on my way to buy a bed. Saw so one lying on the side of the road, so I took that one instead. And I also found. waste oh no only stuff in the wrong place yeah I said there's no such thing as waste. Ways, what no stuff in the wrong place. Bip, 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 bip. I said there's no such thing as way Only Opportunity to be
0: raised. Welcome to P Gap. Hello Charlie from Formidable Vegetable, how are you?
2: Pretty good. It's a beautiful sunny winter's day. well it's not quite winter yet just kind of getting ahead of myself, but yeah, having a great time.
0: I like autumn down here.
2: Oh, you don't it's perfect.
0: quite get the UV glare in summer, so you can actually walk around in the middle of the day without disintegrating, which yeah. is always a bonus. <laughs> a what I bonus. love about the Great Southern. Yes, yes. So I've been following your band for the best part of a decade. Firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, Charlie, your passions and what drives you. Obviously, music is at least one passion and gardening another. I don't know where I got that from, but...
2: Oh, who who would have thought? I mean, songs about permaculture. Yeah, I don't know where you got that thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just a genius or psychic, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up down here. And so I guess this is really home, you know, the great southern or the southwest is where I spent most of my time as a kid. And I've always been into music. My dad's a music teacher. My mum was a jazz musician. Well, still is. Yeah, and and I grew up on an off-grid sort of permaculture property, I guess you could call it, even though that's not what my dad would have called it at the time. But yeah, we lived off-grid, had you know solar power and composting toilets and veggie gardens and chickens and no TV, which was a big big deal in the 90s. So I guess I just got to explore the outdoors a bit more and give my chickens names and and learn different ways to hang out with nature and and. I think that's a big passion of mine actually is just being surrounded by the living world and and connecting with the living world whatever whatever form that that takes and community as well I'm here at Living Waters permaculture community where we've just moved and it's a real buzz to live with so many diverse and interesting people and trying to come up with ways to work together and you know, self-govern and work with the the human world as well as the non-human world. So, yeah, you know, music's a passion, but I'd say, like, communicating interesting ideas is more of a passion, and I use music as a tool to do that. Not your traditional musician journey, but I guess it's one that I've just carved out over the years.
0: And we're definitely recording here at Living Waters, so there's going to be odd bird call throughout the interview. I yep. will not be editing that out. You know, a <laughs>
2: cro- crow just flew past.
0: I first came across you in a slightly less living part of the world. Well, Melbourne, which is uh, buzzing with human it's activity. Vibrant city, yes. <laughs> yes, vibrant cultural city, not much in the way of other species. Uh, I first came across formidable vegetable sound system as it was back then uh, seven years ago uh, when I was organizing a benefit gig with doing it ourselves um, which I was an um, organizer for and we needed a headline band um, and everyone said oh you've got to get formidable vegetable sound system and that's when I first heard and I'm just like oh a Fremantle WA bass I'm from there um, I think you were all touring at the time and so my band had to be headlined instead, Shock Octopus And oh. I joked, hey, it's who you know And <laughs> I know myself so. But yeah, I've seen you since At a Melbourne house party at the Yard And in Diamond Creek And most recently on a large stage in Albany So across all the uh, gamut Tell us a little bit about how Formidable Vegetables started And uh, any reflections on your journey over the years
2: yeah, well, we were touring for about seven years, so it wasn't uncommon for us to be on tour. In fact, it was pretty much my my sole state of being for a while. It started, started getting a little bit kind of disorienting. It was like, which hemisphere am I in? Which which city am I in? Where am I in? But um, yeah, it actually began... It started from a, a permaculture design course, which I did um, in 2011, and... I'd gone over to Northern New South Wales and I was living in Lismore and studying at the Permaculture College Australia, um, where I thought I was going to be learning about composting and gardening and growing veggies and that's what permaculture is, right? And mulching. Everyone thought mulching was a permaculture thing, but um, after you know about a week into the course, I, I started having these epiphanies that wow, this was this was about something a lot bigger than that. And it's about a whole kind of worldview like a holistic way of thinking and designing more importantly it's like how to design functional systems in the world um you know basically like using biomimicry or or, you know imitating nature or or more than imitating nature being a part of nature it's like seeing ourselves as a part of the whole which is um is something that i think we find a bit difficult as humans but anyway Yeah. yeah i was i was told to do a bit of homework during one of the sessions of the permaculture course. And my teacher told us that we had to go and read a chapter of David Holmgren's book, The Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, and pick a permaculture principle from it and present it to the class in a non-linear way. And we were studying non-linear pattern languages at the time, and that was all about different knowledge systems and ways of understanding the world, like uh, traditional societies often used art or dance or ritual to kind of communicate things or teach the young people uh, knowledge and rather than written text and so we had to come up with some way that was using this nonlinear method to, to communicate a permaculture principle and I was just sort of carrying around a ukulele at the time and playing just casually for fun and my housemate Katrina who was also doing the course Um, said to me hey why don't you write a song on a ukulele about a permaculture principle and I looked at her with this kind of grimace and went who'd want to listen to a song about permaculture that's so daggy but uh, my teacher, Robin Francis, had actually been in a band in the 90s called the Green Gorilla Gang. It's, like, so 90s. And they had this, like, <laughs> punky sort of, like, indie rock vibe and had all these songs about gorilla gardening and, and growing food in the park and doing permaculture and recycling. And she, she played us a few of these YouTube clips. And I was like, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, if she could do it, uh, maybe I could too. And so I, you know, took Katrina up on her a, on a offer of, uh, well, more of a threat, actually She was cooking dinner at the time For the, the housemates And she said, you're not getting your dinner Until you've written a verse and a chorus Of a song about permaculture So I was like, oh, alright, well that's a motivation And I busted out a quick few lines On um on my ukulele and, and wrote down some stuff about recycling And and running a truck on veggie oil Which I'd just done And then sung it to her And she's like, that's great, alright, here's your dinner And But that sort of sparked... The, uh, obviously, finished the song and then presented it to the class, and they all loved it. And after that, just the the idea to record an album of songs about permaculture emerged, and and that's what became the first album. And so, in, at the end of 2012, I had 12 songs about the permaculture principles based on the book that I'd been reading in the PDC, and and then I was like, okay, now what do I do with it? Because I've got an album and I've never recorded an album before. I'd played on other friends' albums and I'd been a musician for 15 years, but I'd never actually been a songwriter. It was only through doing this course that I was inspired to write songs. I was like, okay, I've got an album. I've got all these amazing people playing on it because I'd asked all my musician friends from around the traps like Mal Webb and Alex Burkoy and all these other amazing musos that I'd met over the years to play on it. And they, they said, yeah, sure. So I had this great sounding album, but no Idea of how to get it out there, or what to do with it, or who it was for. I was like, well, "Who's going to listen to this?" It's all about this really nerdy topic, and you know, I think permaculture is cool, but half the world doesn't even know what it means. Um, is this just going to be for people to play on permaculture courses or at TAFE or you know, kids' sustainability? Like, I had no idea. Then this really strange thing happened where <laughs> I was I was in a band at the time called ensemble formidable or ensemble formidable as we like to say you know to sound more culturally uh (laughs) Upper class.
0: There was a lot of um French sounding names back around yeah, in two thousand ten. Yeah. I remember Institut Polaire being
2: one. Yeah, as it was well, pretty trendy. And, yeah. I was in yeah. a band called Dublon before that. We are French, therefore we are good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we actually had a French guy in the band, so that was, you know, semi legit. <laughs> <laughs> and we were kinda of like minouche jazz with an electronic beat. So it was like electro swing, which was also kind of becoming a thing around that. I wouldn't say it became popular, but it was sort of popular among circus carnies and ragamuffins like me. And so we had this epic 11 piece band that played stompin electro swing. And we started to get a bit of a name on the festival circuit. And we played at Fairbridge uh, in, here in WA and then a few other festivals around. And then we got invited to play at the 2012 Solar Eclipse Festival, which was a big deal. It was a massive international dance music festival and mostly electronic, but they had some bands and they wanted to get an electro swing band to play. And so they heard about us and um, and said, oh, hey, we'd like you to open the main stage on the opening night. Can you come over? And we said, yeah, that'd be great. But there were 11 of us. So it was a bit of a logistical nightmare trying to organise everyone to, you know, take time off work and fly over to Cairns in Queensland. And then play this gig. And rounding up musicians is a bit like herding cats, Oh, definitely, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, people were at various stages of, like, professional life and just other commitments, and it was, like, a real logistical nightmare. And in the end, you know, I I kind of just... Because I really wanted to go to this festival as well, and a lot of my friends were going. And I kind of just got a bit tired of, like, waiting or finding out how much it was going to cost because we we weren't going to make any money from it. It was, like, it was actually going to be an expense... I just said to the band, look, if you don't mind, like, I'm just going to go. And if you guys can sort yourselves out, like, I'll see you there. So I went over early. And the band called up a few days later and said, Oh, hey, we're coming. I was like, great. So um, I went and talked to the organizers and checked in. I was like, they would offered us to play on the second night. But then I talked to the organizers and they said, Oh, so you're playing. You're, you're opening the festival <laughs> on the first night. And I talked to the band and they said, oh, well, we've got flights for the second night. Oh, no. And we can't, we can't make it on the first night. And I said, but, but this is the date they gave it. Oh, no. And there was this big confusion stuff up. Obviously, I still can't figure out what happened. But, <laughs> but basically, it boiled down to the fact that I was going to be the only band member there on the night we were meant to play. And the band was like, what are we going to do? We've, we've got flights. We're coming over. We've we booked for this gig. And this is the date they've told us. So I talked to the organiser and I said, look, this has happened, you told us this date, the band's coming over this date, but now you're telling me this date, what are you going to do? And they said, oh, no, I don't know, like, you guys are the opening act, you're the headline act for the whole festival, like, can't you change your flights or something? I was like, dude, there's 11 people, like, you're going to pay for, like, that many flights to be changed? He's like, oh, no, all right, don't worry about it, look, we'll figure something out, we'll put you on the second night, but what are we going to do on the first night? And I, I just, like, thought on my feet, and I was like, well... I have a ukulele and some songs about permaculture, and uh, I can put some electronic beats to it. And I was like, I have no idea how to put electronic beats to my stuff. (laughs) they were like, yep, sounds great, do that. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, I just landed myself a gig headlining the opening, the main stage of an international electronic music festival with this band that I've never played with before, with an act that doesn't exist. And so I had four days... To, to figure out how to program, beats. Ram- to figure out how to produce beats, and, and a friend of mine, um, actually had you know been a DJ and producer for a while, and he was coming to the festival and showed me just a few tricks on Ableton and helped me program a few of my tracks into vaguely electronic sounding um, tunes, and we just kind of smashed it out for four days, and then on the day of the the first day of the festival, I was running around the artists' campsite just just. Plucking artists, anyone that I could find with an instrument, like, hey, um, you, can you play with me on the main stage opening night tonight? A, a person with a violin, a person with a keyboard. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. What are we playing? I was like, don't worry, I'll just yell out keys and it'll be fine. So they're like, okay. And we cobbled together a, a band of about six people, including my mate uh, who DJ'd. And then we got up on stage. And as we were getting on stage, the, the, the MC was about to announce us, and, you know, like, open the festival. And she's like, what are you called? And I was like, oh, God, we haven't got a name. <laughs> so, <laughs> so being you know, being there to kind of represent Ensemble Formidable, I was like, well, I'm only here as a filler, so I'm going to announce that the band's coming tomorrow night, but but who am I? So I just blurted out, Formidable Vegetable Sound System, and that's what they announced us as. And so I played the gig, and it went down a treat, and I, I actually have very little memory of it because it was such a blur. Mm. But afterwards, the crowd was just raving about it and and I got off stage and I instantly got invited to a handful of international music festivals around the world including Glastonbury and Shambhala and Boom and Blazing, not you know, Burning Man stuff like that. And I was like, What just happened? And everyone was talking about this formidable vegetable sound system. I'm like, oh, Okay, I guess that's a thing now. So that <laughs> was just- it all in hush reverent whispers. I was, <laughs> <a> vegetable <laughs> vegetable I was sound like, system. Did you see that formidable vegetable sound system? I'm like, Prah! That's just the name that I came up with on the spot. <laughs> yeah. But then it just sort of catapulted us on this journey for seven years touring around the world, and it just kind of snowballed, and and I didn't get off until 2019, (laughs) basically. But it was pretty unexpected, going from a bunch of songs about a nerdy topic uh, based around permaculture to playing at international dance music festivals. I'm still not quite sure what happened.
0: No, I mean, it's amazing, like, how many um, musicians and bands will... Strive for this kind of thing And to accidentally stumble Into it um...
2: I did have this weird feeling When I put down the phone after saying I'll just get up and play the opening night I was like Wow, things are about to get interesting.
0: Yeah yeah. <laughs> so, certainly they have been interesting. And before we go on, oh God, please indulge me. When you um talked about your teacher being in a nineties version of Formidable Vegetable, just trying to imagine what the chorus would sound like. It's on it's...
2: YouTube. It's, it's look up the Green Gorilla Gang. Yeah. And I think it's called I think it's called Green Gorilla Gang actually, but yeah, Robin Francis, Green Gorilla Gang. She's an absolute legend.
0: Does it sound anything like, <laughs> With some worm juice, that's, that's dangerous. There's a, We're nor facing with some phosphorus.
2: There's a, bit, there's a bit of that in there, yeah, yeah I'm
1: sure. It's like,
2: <laughs> plant chocos in the park and eat my red hot chilies. A, yeah, yeah, oh, awesome. yeah, yeah.
0: It's often joke, like a great artist can sing the phone book and, um, <laughs> and uh, people will love it. Um, so, for formidable Vegetables, sing passages from the Permaculture Design Manual um, and get people up and boogieing, which is amazing. Um, I remember at your Diamond Creek gig getting an LP for my housemates on vinyl and presenting it to them, and they started crying. <laughs> Tears of joy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: that's nice.
0: Did Growing up in a permaculture background made singing about such things a natural fit. Or was there trepidation around
2: singing beyond the usual musical tropes? And I, you may have touched on this. But... I didn't sing much as a kid. I, I like my mum was a singer, but I always felt really self conscious about it and embarrassed. And she'd always try and get me to sing. My dad would try and get me to sing, but I'd be like, I don't want to sing. I can't sing. I don't have a good voice. And of course, I could sing. I could hold a tune. And you know, I'd, I'd been raised in a musical family, but I just didn't have the confidence. And I I didn't really have the confidence until after I started writing songs about permaculture, to just get out there and do it, because I was like, you know what, this is so important, I don't care. Like, I'm going to put myself aside for a second and just do this thing, because I feel like it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> singing, uh, I try not to sing passages from the permaculture text, like <laughs> sounds a bit didactic or cultish. And I think uh, some people always, you know, would jokingly ask, oh, so is permaculture a cult? Like, are you the cult leader or, you know, what's going on here? And we are like, well, not exactly. <laughs> like, I've, just, I've just got these ideas that I think are cool and like, I'm just kind of inspiring songs about them. There is something to the, you know, being able to sing the phone book, so to speak, but... The, the idea behind it was that, you know, we can turn complex ideas into something enjoyable and accessible and useful, and and that music isn't always used for that, you know, there's, there was plenty of, like, Beyonce putting a ring on it and, like, Bieber, you know, just kind of doing the, all this pop mm. stuff that wasn't necessarily about empowering people mm. or doing something about the climate crisis. Like, climate crisis wasn't even a thing back then, you know. I mean, it was, but nobody talked about it. Mm. Now, it's it's really changing. Like, it, it's actually snowballing, and young bands and artists are talking about this stuff and singing about this stuff.
0: Even Sky News says that it might be a problem in 50 years' time. <laughs> wow. So, you know,
2: baby steps. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> but 10 years ago, they were calling us witches or something. Well, so, that's it. And, yeah. you know, when I, when I first started, I, and, and when I first started doing little gigs... Uh, around town, like open mics and things, just to kind of test the waters before that big gig blew up. Um, I was really nervous, and I was like, wow, I'm in Perth, I'm in a mining town, ultimately, and I'm, going, I'm playing songs about sustainability, and there's people who literally work for, you know, the opposite of sustainability, and what are they going to think? Am I going to get my head clubbed in or something? And, you know, but it actually, I, I found that it it actually went down really well, because... Music was the tool, kind of like a spoonful of sugar, you know, makes the medicine go down. It was That, that tool of, of using songs to communicate something a bit serious or a bit, you know, complex was just such a great way to do it. And so I, I did get a little taste of that before jumping on the main stage, just solo playing ukulele mm. at, at open mics, and I tested the waters a bit. But it was, yeah, it was an interesting experiment. And that's something that I've been really interested in ever since, is trying to communicate complex ideas in a a fun and accessible way.
0: It reminds me of when I started doing music back in Perth 12 years ago, um, and the band was all about singing really about the environmental crisis, but in a very you know end of the world kind of a way yeah there was a bit of that that feeling of doing that in Perth as well mm. and at the start like people had no idea what to make of us and yeah. I was called an alarmist and extremist yeah. and the same people are almost talking about the end of the world like it's um um talking about the weather now and yeah and it's just amazing how it's how it's shifted got two questions about music as a medium for the message. Um, And the first is there's one way to communicate things, which is arguing with people over social media, which seems to be like a dopamine (laughs) dopamine rush. But but do, do you feel perhaps that music is a way of packaging the message so it's more digestible for people to hear things that, they may otherwise argue with people over or
2: totally and and yeah i I was always really careful as well to present it in a way that was really positive like in the beginning i was i was like right okay i can't be this you know it's the end of the world guy there's already a few bands that you know that i knew were doing that and like you know that the activist the kind of angry activist style and you know i appreciated that and I, i was i was into a lot of that you know, a lot of those songwriters. But I was like, okay, this is about something that's actually a solution, that can actually do something about the problem. Like, I've got to keep it really focused on that. And so, you know, I'd present the problem in kind of a light-hearted or silly way. Like, you know, presenting something like climate change in a silly way is like, you know, no mean feat. This is like, how do I mm-hmm. do this? But, you know, I'd, I'd get that out of the way. So people kind of like, okay, this is what he's talking about. And then... And then present the solutions in in whatever song I was singing. And then kind of talk about it either end. And like, well, hey, so, you know, there's these massive problems. But, hey, here's something we can do about it. And, by the way, there's this thing called Permaculture, which I thought was awesome. And, you know, check it out. So, yeah, and music is just, again, the medium that sort of smooths out all of the other stuff. Where people can just dance along and have a boogie if they don't care about anything else. And that was something I found at Glastonbury, actually. When we first played... Glastonbury, which is, you know, one of the world's biggest music festivals, I was like again, thinking like, who the hell's gonna li- be listening to songs about permaculture at Glastonbury, you know, there's a Rolling Stones playing, for crying out loud but, um, you know, our first gig was in this massive rave dome like, venue where this crankin' and drum and bass act was playing just before us and everyone was just like, going off their nut, and, and then I was backstage being like, oh god, we got to get up, we're gonna get up with a ukulele and a trumpet player and a and sing about permaculture, like, what the hell? But we got up and, you know, cranked on the beats and then played our set, and these these crew that were just rocking out to drum and bass a second before stuck around and rocked out to us, and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is cool, and afterwards... You know, they were coming up and buying vinyl and raving to us about, oh, man, that was awesome, yeah, sick beats. And I was like, oh, cool, yeah, you like the beats. And they're like, oh, yeah, and all this gardening stuff and permaculture stuff. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. That sounds awesome. And I was like, oh, there you go. Like, I guess it didn't go over everyone's head. I was, I was, <laughs> my fear was that it. would just be, oh, yeah, this is a cool beat. I'll dance to it and then go off and forget about it. Mm. But it did seem to have an effect. And, and over the years after that, you know, I, I kept getting feedback from people who'd been to gigs or... Or seen us at festivals and they were showing us photos of their garden plots in community gardens Or like telling us about this cool project they started because they did a permaculture course or whatever And I was like, wow, this is really cool this This was the point And just seeing it sort of play out slowly But, you know, just every little bit counts Was just so fulfilling And one of the best bits of feedback I got was from a teacher who played our stuff to her students In a school in Arnhem Land And she was just all about permaculture and gardening. She was a permie as well. And she wanted to set up a school garden. And so she used the album, Permaculture Rhymer's Manual, as as like a curriculum for her kids. And they got so into it, they wanted to replace their school, their their class soundtrack of Michael Jackson, who was their previous favourite, with Formidable Vegetable. And then they sent me this blog of their garden that they sort of incrementally created. And... You know, all these photos of them harvesting vegetables and then, you know, scarecrows that they'd made, holding ukuleles and just all this inspiration that they'd taken from their teacher. But also our music, it just was such an awesome feeling to see that playing out in the real world and, you know, touching these kids' lives.
0: That's some uh, really great anecdotes there and um, part B of this question, um, if you don't mind me getting a little bit pithy... (laughs)
2: Pith it up. <laughs> Pith it up. up. <laughs> Sounds
0: like a new formidable vegetable song there. <laughs> Question is like um, measuring to what degree, if you're doing something as an entertainment medium, how do you measure to what extent it's been entertaining and to what extent it's inspiring change? And I suppose I've just been reflecting, you know, and the some of the um, countercultural music since the 60s zeitgeist. You know, we had our Joni Mitchells and Bob Dylans and um, obviously they didn't stop um, capitalism gone wild. <laughs> yet. <Maybe>. yet. Yet, yet. <laughs> <laughs> still time. <laughs> there is a definitely still time. I guess this is always something that I'm measuring too, like what degree, even though, you know, PGAP's starting to do quite well, to what extent it might be passive entertainment in lieu of actual activism for the, for the person on the other side. And just when I saw, you know, in Albany, you know, kids and families dancing to it, how do we know or is it even possible to know, do, do you get a sense that people are coming to the gigs and coming away and wanting to make a difference or, um, or to what extent is... We listen to music, so obviously we're doing permaculture, even though we're not, so...
2: I I think so. I I think there's always an element of that, whether people come to a gig already knowing what the band's about or if they've never heard of permaculture before and they're like, what the hell's this? Like, I think everyone's going to go away with something, Mm. like a seed that's planted. And that's really the intention. It's not to, like, change the world. I mean, that'd be great, but I I was very realistic in in my self... You know, my limitations And, you know, I I consider myself a a competent musician But I'm not a a superstar And I never aspired to be, like, a world-famous rock star or pop star And, and if anything, it was more as a way to inspire to, to, To kind of play my part within a larger movement And permaculture is a global movement Within other global movements And I feel like, you know, if you look around now There are... A lot of movements that are coming together to for the same cause and so you know I'm in it for the long game so by playing just entertaining music about solving the climate crisis or you know the fossil fuel crisis or biodiversity crisis or whatever I'm kind of just trying to keep the wheels moving of people who are inspired to go out and make change in whatever way they want to make change. And and that's why I've moved more into the space of kids' music, because kids just get this stuff. I mean, they're living in a world where, well, you know, we know what world they're living in, and they notice this stuff, and they're, they're getting activated around this stuff. I mean, more so than ever. Like, I never really understood global issues when I was 10 years old, but you look at kids now, and they're they're really concerned, like they're genuinely concerned and they're genuinely activated to want to do something about it. So I've moved more into like playing music for families and kids to try and just give that encouragement of like, hey, you know, we're all in this together. We're all working on on this big, big problem. And this can continue, you know, beyond me, beyond you, we've got to make it, we've got to keep it going. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever see the outcome of it in my Mm -hmm. lifetime, you know, just like Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan didn't, end capitalism or change the world, you know, but they have. They've inspired countless people, and who knows what effect that's had. It's, it's unquantifiable. Mm. And so it's hard, you know, in a world that where everything has to be quantified and measured and you've got to, you know, know what your stats are on Instagram to, like, make it worth, you know, like all of this this extrinsic worth that we're told we need to pay attention to, I, I think it's a bit of a furfy because there's almost no way to, to measure the effect that we have on people or on the world. And so there's a lot of trust that just needs to come from that. And, and I've got to keep reminding myself, you know, like even if I play a gig to one person and they they go away happy, I'm like, oh, great. Well, you know, that's that's a success. Uh, you know, in the scheme of being a successful musician, that looks like a, a flop or whatever. But But I have to look beyond that to the greater movement. And so every little thing that we can do, You know, I think that is activism, that is making a change. Like, whatever energy you have to put into something that you're passionate about that makes life a bit better for someone else or something else is a good thing. That's in a roundabout way. I don't know if that answers the question, but but yeah. I
0: wondered whether to ask that question, but I thought I'd better just because I know a lot of people do it, experimenting with messages and making us entertaining and I'm, i mean I'm sure there's always this thing in the in the background too, so I think it was a that was a really good answer
2: well yeah. i always i always you know thought about the the principle of succession in permaculture we try to design for succession, so we ultimately try to design ourselves out of a system which sounds counterintuitive it depends on depending on how you look at it but but my aim from the beginning with this project was that I would somehow inspire an even better musician than myself to to write songs about this stuff and and or, or that you know someone who was already famous like would start singing about this stuff. I'm like, "Come on, famous celebrities, like why aren't you talking about climate change or why aren't you talking about you know social issues and now. Mm. They all are. And mm. I'm like, well, you know, I don't know how much of a part I played in that. I I, I don't know Billy Eilish or Aurora, but maybe somehow, I don't know, over the years, the narrative has shifted and I've been a, a small part of that. And so in that sense, I'm like, great, you know, maybe my job's done. I mean, it's not like there's plenty more to do. But that part of it, I was like, cool, I don't have to be Billy Eilish or Aurora. Like I can I can be myself and I can do my thing but they're taking it to the, the world stage, and it's like, wow, that, that literally wasn't a thing 10 years ago.
0: That is so true. You practice what you preach in many ways, and one example of that, we you talked about Glastonbury. Um, was it true that Formidable Vegetable stopped going to Glastonbury because of the
2: air miles? Yeah, that was pretty much the reason. We, it wasn't just Glastonbury. We cancelled an entire world tour, which I'd pretty much finished booking, um, after a tw- 2018, uh, IPCC report, number one came out now we're up, up to, was it number two or three mm. and they just keep getting worse. But mm. I read that report and obviously, you know, engaged with all the media around that and just kind of had this moment of like, right, it's time to change something again. You know, I'd been conscious of the irony of singing about. Living sustainably whilst flying around the world to festivals and you know the old the voice of the the naysayer like oh well you know you can't protest fossil fuels because your guitar strings are made of plastic kind of thing was like mm. you know always present in the back of my mind and, and and part of me was just like all right look this is just for now this is just using a tool that's available and I'll do what I can with what I have but yeah when I when I read that report and I just finished touring New Zealand and New Zealand caught on fire and this was before uh, Black summer fires in australia Mm. but in 2019 it was already pretty clear that stuff was getting weird Mm. and when the south island of new zealand was literally blazing after we got out of a festival there and there was a total fire ban at this festival that never experienced a total fire ban before and i got back to australia and victoria was on fire and tasmania was on fire and then Townsville flooded and i was like okay like i gotta do something here and uh at that oh, time back in the days when that was novel. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's it, before it became just everyday, everyday, yeah. <laughs> I dream of those days now. <laughs> um But I, I read in the paper that um Bob Brown was gonna do a convoy to protest the Adani mine and he was gonna take, you know, however many people up to Queensland and, and make a statement before the upcoming election and I thought, Well, you know, instead of doing a world tour, I guess I could do that. <laughs> And I just I literally just made the call to stop flying, changed the entire plans and jumped in my waste veggie oil powered f- converted fire truck house stage and took off up the east coast to play permaculture songs on a on a coal mine protest, which turned into a massively over politicised well, I guess it was political in by design, but it was twisted around into all kinds of, you know, forms by the media and obviously it was at an election time so it depending on who you talk to it was more or less successful than it maybe was intended but for me it was just i've got a you know I, mm. I felt like i had to take my activism into another space and maybe try and ramp it up a notch it's been uh, pretty interesting since then being local locally based instead mm. of globally based and it's actually given me a lot more opportunity to to practice permaculture and to do hands in the ground, growing of food and designing of land and working with community and just all the stuff that I sing about, it's been a blessing, really.
0: You dropped sound system from the name. Is that a response to being more local or is that a response to sounding marginally less naughty? So...
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, I just was like, who needs 10 syllable band name? Like, seriously. I mean, it was great because we were obviously the, the biggest band name on a poster, but <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> yeah, mm. I don't know. It was just trying to kind of, you know, make things a little bit easier for people to remember. <laughs> Plus, we wanted to become a real band. Like, Sound System referred to the electronic beats and the sort of DJ setup. But we started getting more and more members, and we started doing more live shows, like fully live, because previously we played a track um, at every gig. And uh, at Woodford in 2018, I think, uh, we played on the main stage for New Year's in front of 10,000 people, and we had a fully live band. It was awesome. We had 13 people. On stage, I was like, great, we can officially drop sound system. So that was pretty cool.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's great to hear the history of the band because it's just like I've always got like bits and pieces but never the full story and it's uh, could make a movie from it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to twist a few things like the international festival organizers. How dare you stop your tour
2: in the name of money and things like that. <laughs> oh so, man. Uh, there probably was a little bit like that, but they were surprisingly understanding actually. They're like, mm. "Yep, cool. Let us know if you're coming back." Oh, wow, you don't hate us? Thank
0: you. Um, any pithy observations on the permaculture movement since the band started? It certainly seems to have succeeded in becoming bigger rather than less known over the years. Although I do sometimes observe that perhaps um, a lot of people being permaculturists, perhaps some of the information is a little more diffuse. It's, for example, I'm building a house now um, and a lot of advice I'm getting is make it north-facing. It's just like Okay, so what parts are north-facing? Oh, oh, all of it. So it's like, well, I can't make the whole house north-facing, otherwise we're existing in a singular dimension here. So <laughs> make
1: the south
2: side north-facing.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, the only way I can get around this is to build around the North Pole. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so I think yeah, I think permaculture has gotten, had a, had a sort of third wave of energy. I mean, they, they reckon it, they reckon the first wave was in the 70s and the... Second wave was in the nineties, and maybe there's a another third wave happening, but yeah I, again, you know the intention one of the intentions of the band was to help grow the permaculture movement and to help people just know what it was and try out you know maybe doing a course or checking out a local group or just growing some food in their backyard, like whatever, facing their house north <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it has grown and and we My partner and I lived with David Holmgren in 2020, who's the co-originator of the permaculture movement. And he wrote the book that I originally based my album off. And we were lucky to kind of live on his property and, and, uh, you know, do, do the full permaculture life, like milking the goats and preserving the veggies and just living the real deal for eight months during the first COVID lockdown. And, um, yeah, he was always pretty glowing about about the band and, and reckoned he'd say outrageous things like, Formidable Vegetables" has reached more people than the Permaculture Design Course has, and I was like, Dave, that's not actually uh, accurate, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure we've reached more people. I mean, maybe we've physically been in front of more people than that, but, but the effect of doing a two-week course versus just coming to a gig is, is pretty, you know, <laughs> not really that comparable. But yeah, hopefully we have inspired people I know we have inspired people to do courses or to start permaculture groups and that's a great thing for the movement. And I think now like you say it's it's really broadened the diversity of people within the movement. I mean permaculture was always a diverse group of people, but it's it's now in you know every country on the planet and there's groups from the North Pole to sub-Saharan Africa to New Zealand to America, you know, everywhere is doing permaculture in some form. And and as a result, there's really different concepts of what it is about. But that's kind of the beauty of it, is the diversity and the bioregionalism. You know, people figuring out what they need in their region or their community and then applying the principles and ethics to that. It's nothing new, really. Permaculture is just a synthesis of traditional knowledge from thousands of years ago that has been... You know translated into a book by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren but it's like it's actually just translating ancient knowledge from indigenous cultures or you know from from all over the world our own indigenous cultures from once upon a time and indigenous cultures from here and from there and from everywhere and it really does acknowledge that and it's trying to you know a a large part of the movement now is trying to pay homage to those cultures that have inform permaculture thinking and to really kind of step into the spaces of decolonization and and elevating first nations voices and that whole social justice side of things which comes under the ethic of people care. So there's like whole subgroups I suppose and and you know there's like the other extreme of the gun totem survivalist in the states who are doing permaculture so it's like complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. But in a way I think that's the beauty of it. I mean that not everyone agrees or gets along or even you know has a the same agreement of what permaculture is—that's <laughs> and that's a whole other conversation in itself. But, mm. but yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely grown.
0: What's one thing you'd change about modern agricultural system? And I know there are probably many. I'd stop industrialized animal
2: agriculture, but that's just because I'm one of those vegan types. But what one thing I would change about modern agriculture? I think for me it would be connecting people it would be relocalizing connecting people as much as possible with where their food comes from I think that's one of the main problems with industrial agriculture is that it's so disconnected we we go to the shop and we buy a plastic wrapped thing and that's our food and we don't know who grew it or where it came from or even which country it's from and a lot of the regenerative farming movement and you know um, local farmers markets and and community groups like that are, are trying to actively re-establish relationships with the people who grow food and the people who eat food and in that in some senses the people who eat food should be the people who grow food as well or people who grow food should eat their food and i think just making those connections is super important because if we don't have a concept of how it's grown or where it's grown or what practices are being used then we're vulnerable to you know any practices like that we don't agree with like chemical pollution or, you know, treatment of animals or whatever. But if we are actively connected, then we have a democratic food system. We can actually choose. We can influence how our food's grown. We can we can have food sovereignty, which is a big movement in the world. Rather than food security, food sovereignty is about taking ownership of our food production and being involved in it and saying, hey, look, we are empowered to grow food. So I think the more people that are engaged in food and food production in whatever on whatever level like if you live in an apartment sure you can't have a farm but grow some pots of basil on your windowsill you know so if your rooftop can fit some veggie beds whatever like join a community garden it's it's just about any way that we can reconnect and i think that's what permaculture is about it's about making connections
0: now, Post-Growth Australia podcast is a podcast about post-growth, funnily enough. Do you have any thoughts on infinite growth on a finite planet other than the fact it's a great idea oh.
2: <laughs> oh, it's and a f- fail-proof long-term solution? <laughs> well, look, either way you look at it, it's uh, not going to be possible, so Damn. we better start figuring out <laughs> what we're going to do. Break it to me slowly, Charlie. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think it's, I mean, depending on who you talk to, it's uh, becoming more and more apparent that we do live on a finite planet, we don't have infinite resources, and we may have to reach a steady state economy one day. I'm not sure if the Elon Musks or Jeff Bezos of the world realise that yet, but... um, once they take off to Mars, maybe we'll all be able to relax and uh, get on with something better. Unless they just take off with all the resources and that's the end of it.
0: <laughs> but hopefully not. Well, tell us a little bit about your vision for a post-growth world, if you've got one. Um, I'm very sure you do. You've had a time to have a look at the IPCC reports and freak out <laughs> about what you'd like to see instead. Um, so, and, you know, I always ask guests what a day-to-day life might look like. What would be the same? What would be the different i imagine there'd be a little bit more
2: permaculture well yeah i mean i think just anything i I just come back to the idea of enough you know what is enough and i mean i've lived in vehicles for most of my life i've lived you know my (laughs) the average size of my living dwelling hasn't been much more than two by three meters or less or half that I grew up in a shed. You know, we didn't have power. I was—I actually consider myself extremely privileged to have grown up in a sort of pseudo peasant-like yeah. <laughs> circumstance. Where
0: does this mean you're feeling agoraphobic in this room? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's
2: a bit big in the studio. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, it's not that I, I was—I act, was actually yeah, privileged in, in in a global sense, where I you know I live in a first world country. You know, we we had everything we needed. I never went hungry. But the fact that, you know, I got to experience a kind of lifestyle that was slightly below the standards that my peers and and friends at school were experiencing, you know, they were just constantly in awe of like, you don't have power, you don't have running water, what, like, how do you live? And for me, it was just normal, you know, I'd come home from school and I'd, you know, light the hot water fire and, you know, turn on the rainwater tank and and feed the chickens and it it was life. And I've always held onto that as... Well, if that's possible in the 90s in Western Australia, then we can get to that point with our current privileged situation to a point where we're not taxing the entire world just for our standards of living. They say it takes three weeks to change a habit. You know, I've used a composting toilet for most of my life. Some people would find that unfathomable. But after Mm. three weeks, you get used to it. Mm. So I think a lot of the things that we that we just think of as unthinkable, like, you know, they say that it's easier to conceive of the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Really, if capitalism ended tomorrow or changed into a steady state system, we'd get used to it. Like, we'd make it work. Humans are in ingenious organisms and living in community is tricky, but it's doable if we put time and energy into it. And so I think a post-growth world would just look more like smaller communities working with each other rather than outsourcing everything and going away commuting huge distances to work for money to pay a mortgage to go into debt it's like on the ground okay got some soil how am I going to look after this and how can it grow some food that I can eat Okay, we've got some people living around us, how can we interact with them to create regenerative relationships that we can benefit each other with instead of just siloing ourselves into our little, you know, offices and driving to work and never seeing them and not even knowing their names. Like everything we need is right here. And we just need to change that mindset from jobs and growth and jobs and growth to we have enough. We've Mm -hmm. got everything we need. How can we make it better? Fantastic vision! Thanks. I'm, I'm right behind. <laughs> Let's hold on to you. that. <laughs>
0: so, final question. Um, well, firstly, an observation that formidable vegetable have been such an excellent musical backdrop to so many of P Gap's episodes. You know, with our interviews with David Holmgren, um, Charles Massey, Megan Patrick, and it's. And, and thank you so much for providing that backdrop it's been one of the aims of the podcast to include music within that message too but you've got a new recording now and i believe there's a song about um the attention issues with social media so the floor to talk about your new release and how people can find that and a little bit of inside goss
2: yeah so the new album came out last week and um pretty exciting but yeah like i was saying before it's, it's, i've i've focused a bit more on a younger audience it's still funky tunes for anyone really but i've i've released it through a kids label called 8 pound gorilla who um help us get it out in the states and sort of other places like that but yeah i've called it in real life cuz after 2020 and the lockdowns and the zoom calls and the just you know constant being in front of a screen I think I'm not the only one who was driven slightly insane by that, and and seeing the you know what if they someone called it the screen New Deal where uh, you know, everything's <laughs> trying to be be online and you know you've got Amazon just becoming the richest company in the world and and then social media becoming such a such a hive of division and and extraction as well like extracting our attention all of our attention mm. is being poured into these this handful of companies in you know Silicon Valley that are basically the only platforms we have now, I mean, that people think we have to communicate. And there's a thing that I've been learning about called the meta-crisis, which, you know, we have the climate crisis, which is pretty big. We have the biodiversity crisis. We have economic crises. We have everything, Mm. you know, in crisis mode. A crisis of crises, yeah. (laughs) But the meta-crisis is the crisis of communication. The idea that our methods of communication are being so eroded to the point where all we have is Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And that's mediated by these mega companies and, and therefore, you know, kind of limiting our ability to, to agree on the truth or on on what we think is, is real or or valuable. And when it cut, when you look at it in the context of, of climate change, you know, if you can't actually agree on what the problem is and what needs to be done about it, then how can you solve the problem? So that's why they call it the meta crisis, because if we can't solve that crisis, then all the other crises kind of can't be solved either. But I thought, well, that's an interesting topic. Um, how do I write a song about for kids about that? <laughs> so I started with a tune called Short Attention Span, just about being on your phone and not being able to process more than 30 seconds of information at a time. And the song is only 50 seconds long, but half of it is about... Getting back into real life, and that's what the album's called, because real life's where it's at, and doing stuff in the real world is so much more fulfilling. And that is the simple solution to the meta crisis: is just get back to the real world and talk to each other, and grow some food, and do permaculture, whatever. So the solutions to the meta crisis are also the meta solutions. And yeah, it's interesting, kind of moving into that zone because it's a little bit different. Some people be like, "But that's not about permaculture," but. I kind of see that it is. So yeah, that's pretty pretty exciting. One I've released it now and it's out on all of the <laughs> all of the streaming platforms. Ironically, <laughs> you can find it on Facebook, <laughs> but in real life.
0: Oh, thank you so much for that. Uh, perhaps the next album should be a grindcore album because they're only fifteen <laughs> seconds long. Aren't yeah, they totally. <laughs> Okay, next. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: that'd, be, that'd be pretty fitting.
0: Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, Charlie. And um, what's the new album called? In Real Life. In Real Life. Check it out now.
2: Check uh, out In Real Life now. Yeah,
0: probably <laughs> online. Yeah. i probably recommend
2: it. Mm. And if you want me, I'll be In Real Life. <laughs> Good place to be. Thank you so much. Thank you. Short swipe. Short
0: scroll.
1: Short like. Short, low short, snap, short, troll, short, short, grrrr, short, short, attention, short, attention, short, attention, stand. Walk, hike, run, stroll, ride, bike, sing, song. Lunch,
0: eat, hide, seek, bare feet. It's real. It's real in a real life. You are listening to Post Group Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Charlie McGee, a mover and shaker from Formidable Vegetable. I would like to extend my thanks to Charlie for opening his home to me on a fair morning in May within his amazing intentional community near Denmark. The episode was recorded live in a setting with some new portable technology that was recently gifted to me by a hugely generous PGAT fan. In a spirit of thank yous, I would also like to thank Sustainable Population Australia for making PGAT possible. I do recommend supporting The Formidable Vegetable religiously. (laughs) A link to their music is provided in the show notes. More broadly, I do recommend supporting local music. I have sometimes maintained that a society is only ever as good as its music scene and how it treats its artists. So by those standards, Western society well and truly collapsed around 20 years ago. But there is still much that you and I can do to support artists. One is to reverse the insidious trend of treating music like a free commodity while not affording a gift economy in return to artists who must spend outrageous amounts of money on equipment, software, production, mastering, artwork, rehearsal space, promotion and hilarious pay to play culture seriously. An easy way is to pay for music on Bandcamp rather than to pay a subscription fee for Spotify. Another way is to go out to see original live music from people you've never heard before as opposed to spending your money on nostalgia concerts. In most cases it is worth the uncertainty factor. But on this high horse I will bid you an adieu as season 3 wraps to a close. In my platonic ideal, I will be back with the season four of PGAP by around November. So there is plenty of time for you, yes, you specifically, to rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts, hint, hint, and share PGAP with your friends, family, colleagues, and networks, hint, hint. There is plenty of time for you to contact us to give your feedback and guest recommendations. And don't be shy until season four, folks, until then.